0: If you enjoy our videos and podcasts and would like us to continue putting out regular quality content head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview where you can donate monthly and in return you will get rewards ranging from early interview viewings, bonus clips, credited as a producer and much more. Thank you and enjoy. Well, you've seen there. There's a few questions coming in there, Joel, on the side. Yeah. And remember, you can scroll up and <laughs> down. First, so the first one that sticks out to me is, "Do you know Huggy?" <laughs> um, from
1: uh, from Jeff. It's funny because anytime that I talk to someone um, and t- and they find out that I fly the U2, there's usually two questions that I first get asked. The first one is they still fly those things. And then the second one is, do you know Huggy? So <laughs> the the answer to that is yes, I do know Huggy. Uh, uh, John Huggins, um, he's actually a very good friend of mine. Uh, we fly with each other. Uh, we flew with each other in the U2. We fly with, with each other uh, with the Patriots jet team. Um, and uh, we see each other fairly frequently. So yeah, he's a real good guy. And he is He's legendary among the U2 community. There's there is probably not one name that is more synonymous with the U2 than, uh, than Huggy. So I'm glad we got that one out of the way.
0: <laughs> yeah, awesome. Yeah, I think the first question that came in there, Joel, was from Doug. So if you want to start up there, and I'm going to let you loose and enjoy. So enjoy, folks.
1: So... Hey, Doug, how's it going? Yeah, so the first question that I see there, how does the glide ratio of the U2 compare to that of a typical glider? So um, I'll just tell you this. From our operational altitudes, we have a uh, glide range of somewhere around 250 miles or so. So I would have to do the public math, you know, of course, difficult for pilots. So I'm not going to do that in my head real quick. But um, about 250 to 300 nautical miles, depending on winds and everything, of course, uh, you know, from our operational altitude. So when it comes to, uh, you know, engine failures and everything, you have a lot of time uh, to make decisions. If you had an engine failure at altitude, you'd probably have a good hour of thinking time before, uh, before you really had to, to really start dealing with your situation in terms of putting the airplane down on the ground. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It definitely, uh, just kind of floats along and it doesn't go very fast. So you would be able to glide it for quite some time, but Anyway, I just wanted to say thanks to everybody for uh, for showing up. This is the first time that I've done something like this. So please bear with me as I kind of get comfortable with uh, with the format and and everything that's going on. So I'm going to do my best just to run down the list and and, uh, answer everybody's um, questions. So uh, John is asking, what's the uh, the longest U-2 flight I've ever done? Uh, my longest one is actually one of my, my most memorable flights that I've done. It was uh, an 11.4 hour mission. Uh, I took off out of Beale Air Force Base and uh, I, was it, um, I was flying it to the UK. Uh, so flew direct. Uh, the U-2 doesn't have air fueling capability or anything like that. We carry about 14 hours or so of gas on board the airplane. And that would be, you know, to the tanks run dry. So uh, yeah, about an 11.4 hour flight uh, direct to the UK from Beale, and um, it was one where I can really I really remember it very distinctly because when I was over the Northern Atlantic at you know 70 something thousand feet, uh, the Northern Lights were something that I was able to witness from that altitude, and that was one of the most incredible things that I have ever seen uh, to be able to see the glow of the Northern Lights from that altitude as the sun was you know just below the horizon you could still see the glow you know of the sun as it was as it was below the horizon but still not completely set uh flying up over the ice caps it was just absolutely incredible um so yeah <laughs> that was that was a pretty uh pretty incredible flight um so yeah 11.4 there have been longer ones uh i know folks that have done greater than 12 um, and typically we do fly fairly long missions, you know, operationally our, our, missions are anywhere from seven, eight, nine hours plus. And again, we are unrefueled. Um, the airplane does carry quite a bit of fuel and, and at altitude, we don't burn a whole lot of, uh, gas. We actually burn less fuel, um, that full power, uh, at altitude than we do at idle on the ground, which is kind of interesting. Um, Uh, A lot of people don't realize that the U-2, uh, when you take off, you put the throttle into max as you're climbing, as you're passing, your hand flying up until 52,000 feet, powers at max, and then as you continue past 52,000, the autopilot comes on, and um, at that point, you never take the throttle out of max, uh, unless you want to maintain altitude, Um, but in the U-2, you always want to maintain a constant mock climb, so you are in a mock hold climb, the entire time that you're flying the airplane. So you are ascending uh, for the entire mission. So the highest point in your mission is actually right before um, right before you start your initial descent on the, the way home. And that uh, there's a lot of reasons for that, but the fuel curve is one of them. As the airplane gets higher and higher, it burns less and less fuel. And like we said, uh, uh, it burns less gas at altitude than it does at idle on the ground. So it's an interesting airplane. <laughs> Let's see, Chris Fool. Have you been in Germany? Uh, I have been to Germany before, uh, but not with the uh, not with the U two program. Um, but I have done some traveling around uh, around in Germany. What you know during my time in the military when I was flying the KC one thirty five and whatnot. It's absolutely beautiful there. I really really enjoy it. Um. <clears throat> what is the max G rating of the U two? So. With those, uh, so the freckle, the freckle punny <laughs> is asking about the max G rating of the U-2. So it's actually a, uh, a very, um, uh, the, 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 the max G rating of the airplane is very, very low. It's actually um, uh, just above two Gs, uh, depending on the the flap setting. Um, so there's not a whole lot of, of room for Ah, uh, maneuverability in the airplane. You know, you're not going to be doing any abrupt maneuvers, especially with those long wings. Uh, especially with those long wings, um, you really don't want to be pulling too many G's with the airplane. Uh, it's not aerobatic, of course. Uh, so, fairly low G loading on that airplane. Let's see. If you flew a U-2 today, would they quarantine your passenger? <laughs> uh, if we had a passenger in the airplane, it's a single-seat airplane. Um, but we do have a couple two seat U2s that we use for, for primary training. But, uh, fortunately, um, you know, in the spacesuit, you're kind of self quarantined. So you don't need to worry about that now. And Brad Berry, Dingle. Yes, I do know. Uh, I do know Brad Berry as well. He's a good friend of mine. I see him quite a bit and, uh, he's flying for the same airline that I do. So, uh, let's see. Jason Parkinson asked the favorite U-2 tail number to pilot. I'm not really sure. Um, You know, the the U-2 is an interesting airplane in the fact that there aren't many of them. Each one of them was kind of hand-built, and each one of them does have their own unique quirks and and personalities. Um, You know, some just have a slightly heavier wing than others. Some just fly very slightly different than others. Uh, so I wouldn't necessarily say that I have a a favorite tail number. Um, but I don't know. I would have to, I would have to think about that one for a little while. (laughs) Uh, zigzag ground zero asks life in a pressure suit. What is it like? Um, that is an interesting question. So when you're inter, so for those of you that don't know, the to get into the U2 program, there is a two week long interview process. Uh, the interview process um, includes one week of of personal interviews and interviews with the commanders and being able to hang out with the other uh, members of the U2 community and and students and and really it's an opportunity for them to get to know you, you to get to know them. And then the second part of the interview is the flying portion of the interview, where you have to fly the airplane three times and prove that you can meet the learning curve of the airplane. So that way, uh, the the evaluator pilots that are hiring you can kind of expect will be able to train you in a certain period of time, uh, and that you're going to be safe in the airplane, because it's really a It's a it's a seat of the pants, uh, you know, kind of airplane. It really requires to get a good feel. There aren't a lot of numbers. You just kind of have to be able to get it and get it relatively quickly. Anyway, um, in that that first week of interviews, you have a a a spacesuit fitting where you go into uh, you go into uh, the physiological support uh, division, PSD, and we sit down with the, the suit technicians and they fit you for your suit. And then after your suit is fitted. Uh, they find one that's close, you get to put it on, and they do a claustrophobia check. And this claustrophobia check is uh, effectively putting you in the suit and sticking you in a corner for 45 minutes with nothing to do. Uh, you have this little binder of information that you can read, and uh, they stick you in this corner, and you just have to kind of hang out, and it's to make sure that the, you know, you're not claustrophobic, that you can kind of mind over matter it a little bit and and kind of give you your first taste of what it's like in the suit. Now that being said, that is probably the most miserable 45 minutes you're ever going to spend in the suit uh, because you're not doing anything. Um, I can tell you certainly from from a lot of experience uh, in the suit itself, once you put it on uh, when PSD is, is integrating you, it takes a little bit to get used to what's happening. when When they're putting you into the suit, You'll take your last breath as they close the helmet, and everything becomes very, very quiet. And you can hear the sound of your breath in the regulator on the right-hand side of the helmet. Uh, you can hear all of the machines and everything uh, that's uh, that's providing all of the life support to to uh, to keep the air flowing and, and whatnot uh, before they send you out to the airplane. When you get out to the airplane, uh, as you're getting strapped in, you honestly kind of uh, this isn't the case when you're learning. When you're learning, you put on the suit, and um, you know, your IQ is immediately <laughs> cut in half um, uh, when you're trying to figure out how to to operate an airplane with a uh, you know the fishbowl on your head and oven mitts on your hands. Uh, but after a while, after you get some experience with it, you really start to almost kind of forget that it's there. But it does take some getting used to. Some of our our training curriculum actually. Um, uh, are simply for learning how to survive and live in the suit. From the survival aspects of it um, to just ba- a basic uh, you know, daily life inside of the spacesuit, from learning how to eat uh, to learning how to you know, use the restroom. I think we touched upon that a little bit in, the, uh, in one of the other uh, videos. But um, it can be, it's interesting. It's not something that most people have a lot of experience with. Uh so you know it's something that is definitely new for just about everybody when you uh when you get to that part of the, the training program. So maybe we can talk a little bit more about that, uh a little bit more about that later. Anyway, um Space Dreams. Have you ever had a failure in the U two while I'm flying? Yeah, you know, I was very lucky. Uh personally I didn't have a whole lot of of really severe Um, You know, certain significant emergency procedures that I had to uh, to go through when I was flying the airplane, and they're actually fairly uncommon. Um, You know, some friends of mine have had hydraulic failures. Um, We had some uh, some pressurization seal issues for a little while there that they were able to mitigate, and I had one situation where uh, I was being notified in the cockpit that. Um, one of our avionics bays was starting to depressurize a little bit. And when that happens, <clears throat> when we lose pressurization in the airplane, uh, not in the cockpit itself, but in one of the, one of our avionics bays, uh, because the air is so thin up at altitude, uh, the avionics actually start to heat up. So it's very important that we maintain pressurization throughout the entire airplane. Um, so as we were, I was starting to very slightly lose pressure in one of those avionics bays, it was time to come home because uh, we didn't want to uh, to destroy uh, you know any of the avionics. And I did have one situation where I had a malfunction of the uh, the system that provides cooling air to the spacesuit., uh, so when I was about to take off, this was actually on one of my check rides in the airplane. We were about to take off on the runway, and all of a sudden I started to have really hot bleed air being pumped into the suit. Um, and I'll tell you what, I have never been so uncomfortable in my life, uh, to the point where we canceled the takeoff taxi back. I was in one of the two seat airplanes at the time and, uh, uh, the instructor pilot who happened to be one of my best friends actually had to take over cause I was about to pass out, uh, because I was so hot from the hot bleed air being pumped into the suit. Uh, so we, we quickly got back to park and got out of the airplane and I just pulled the whole suit off as quickly as I could on the tarmac right there. So, uh, fortunately nothing in the air though. Um, so let's see. Did you ever have to evade a Sam or a MIG? I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. I've always wanted to say that. Let's see here. Oh, sorry. Um, as I'm scrolling through here, it's jumping around a little bit, and I want to make sure that I go in order here, not to uh, not to really miss anybody. Favorite piece of memorabilia in the Heritage Room. Um, <laughs> we have so for for those of you that may not know, and you, you can see the Heritage Room on some of the YouTube videos uh, that are out there, some of the James May stuff, and uh, and some of the other folks that have done. Uh, done uh, video documentaries on on the U two. We have uh, the Squadron Bar, which is otherwise known as the Heritage Room, and we have all kinds of great memorabilia in that airplane from the beginning of the U two program all the way to uh, to um, you know present day. And one of the cool things about that room is that all of the new classes that come through they have to do something to contribute to the Heritage Room, and uh, it's it's really fun as a class to be able to come up with something, something to contribute. Uh, so some of my favorite pieces in there, we actually have a tail hook. Um, and there, there may be, uh, this may be unknown to a lot of folks, but we actually, for a couple of years, flew the U2 off of aircraft carriers. Um, believe it or not, there's some, some video out there of us, us trying to do this. Uh, they thought it would be a great idea to try and, and forward deploy the airplane. On, uh, on a carrier. So they put a tail hook on one, and they, they did successfully land the airplane on a carrier a couple times. Uh, so we actually have one of the tail hooks um, from that program hanging in the, the Heritage Room. And we have uh, an ejection seat in there that came out of one of the airplanes, I'm sure, way back in the day, which is, is kind of cool. But the uh, probably my favorite piece in the Heritage Room is um, the U-2 doll, so everybody needs to go on eBay and look up the YouTube pilot doll, and uh, it's like a no kidding like Ken and Barbie you know doll all dressed up in the suit with their suit uh, the 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 liquid oxygen suit cooler and you know his very own little bottle of uh, tube food and stuff they're they're pretty hilarious so I think you can go out on on uh, uh, eBay and buy one so I don't personally have one but we have one in the heritage room. Excuse me. Let's see. Lincoln Graysby. Grasby. Lincoln Grasby. Uh, what was your favorite flavor of tube food? So the, the tube food thing um, was kind of cool. So uh, tube food is what we ate uh, in the spacesuit when we were on a mission. Um, tube food, for those of you that don't know, is uh, it looks like a tube of toothpaste. and uh, But inside this tube is ground up, uh, pureed food of all different types, whether it be chicken a la king or whether it be, um, cheesy polenta and bacon or, uh, some sort of fruit like peaches or, uh, something, you know, something like that. And they would grind it all up. It's, it, I, I understand that it's made by the same company that makes all of the MREs for the military. Um, I think there's another YouTube video on actually how that it's made anyway. Uh, so that food is, um, uh, so they put it in, in these tubes and then before a mission, we can pick as many of them as we want to. Uh, I usually would grab, you know, five or six of these things Three was a pretty good meal and we would, uh, you'd take them with you. And there was a little port on the side of the helmet and you would take the tube food. There's this long straw that attaches to the end of the tube. You'd plug it in and, uh, you would just kind of roll the tube up and, and eat your tube food. So that's, uh, that's how you ate in the airplane. And, uh, there was some pretty good flavors. I think my personal favorite was, uh, the chicken a la King. Um, and then, and, uh, the, the Plenten bacon was actually pretty good too. Believe it or not, they were all actually pretty good. Uh, and the best dessert was the key lime pie. No kidding. Uh, it tasted just like key lime pie. Um, and it was was not bad. I'm going to grab a quick drink of water here. Let's see. John Ellis asks, uh, have any U-2 pilots flown the same airframe as their father or grandfather? I'm sure they probably have. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm not 100% sure if there have been any father-son or grandfather-son Uh, U-2 pilots Um, I know for a little while while I was in the program we had the first husband and wife uh, U-2 pilots that was pretty cool Uh, she ended up uh, going on to fly for a major airline here in the US and uh, her husband is still still in the program so uh, that was kind of cool let's see Knowing the outcome of the Gary Powers incident, so MKMD exploration, knowing the uh, the outcome of the Gary Powers incident, uh, how did it make you feel knowing that this would be your role and what training did you have for this scenario or for being captured? Uh, so the Gary Powers incident um, was, of course, interesting. I read his, his, uh, his biography and... Um, there was the movie A Bridge of Spies that, that came out a little while ago that Steven Spielberg filmed and uh, they were actually at Beale for quite some time uh, filming. I've got quite a few friends that are that are in the movie. Uh, they used all a bunch of YouTube pilots and a bunch of YouTube maintainers as uh, extras in the movie to you know, drive Gary Powers out to the out to the airplane. The airplanes that they were using in the movie were actual uh, U2s. They did a little bit of CGI to to uh, to. Um, uh, take out some of the detail on the airplanes, but uh, they were actually uh, out there. And how did it make me feel knowing that this would be my role? I knew what I was getting into when I signed up, you know, for the program. I knew I was flying a very unique airplane, uh, an airplane that is very high visibility to, you know, um, to countries in which we may be uh, observing. And, um, you know, it's just... Flying the airplane was just something that I had always really wanted to do. It was a community that I had always really wanted to be a part of, and I felt the mission was incredibly important. And that really kind of outweighs you know, any of the, the negative side of it. I mean, as a military pilot, you kind of already have accepted that there's a level of risk um, that, uh, or, or know there's a level of risk that you've, you've accepted. Uh, so I think it's just being able to take that, compartmentalize it, and then move on with with uh, you know doing your job. And then the type of training uh, that you have for this scenario of being captured. So every Air Force pilot, uh, every uh, Air Force aircrew member does have to go through survival training, uh, and that survival training is done when you are uh, just after you finished up pilot training and before you uh, before you go off to fly whatever operational airplane. Uh, that you're going to fly. It's fantastic training. I absolutely loved slash hated <laughs> going through survival because it's difficult. Um, but uh, some of the most memorable training uh, that I have had. So I uh, felt very well prepared for, you know, that sort of scenario. Although, you know, you can really only prepare so much. And and we all know throughout history, uh, a lot of times that sort of situation doesn't go as planned. So uh, you just hope that uh, you know. If you do encounter that situation, um, uh, you you react in the best way that you can. Okay, let's see. Moving on. Um, let's see. One CAG asks, uh, "What's the approximate climb rate from sixty to seventy thousand feet?" So once you, it really depends um, on how much fuel the airplane has. Uh, obviously, the heavier the airplane is, um, the uh, the slower it's going to climb. At operational weights, what will happen is generally you'll get up into you know the mid sixties or so, and then you will start a very slow climb uh, at basically the the service ceiling of the airplane as you're as you're burning off fuel, getting higher and higher and higher. So uh, I wish I could give you more specifics than that, but that's about as far as as I'm gonna go on that one. <clears throat> Jason Parkinson asks, after your first U2 solo, did you get the cork onto the top of the hanger? Yes, I did. And I got it onto the top of the hanger after my Finny flight. So, <laughs> and I have both of those champagne bottles. So the tradition is um, after you solo, you get out of the cockpit everybody the, the squadron comes out and uh, everybody kind of you know gives you the the punch on the shoulder when they put the the uh, the solo patch on your shoulder and says congratulations and you take a bottle of champagne and you shake it up and blow the cork and and see if you can get it on top of the hangar that you parked in front of so you make a drug deal with the crew chief before the flight you know to make sure that they pull you up as close to the hangar as possible and when they give you the the X to stop, you might wait, you know, another three or four feet to actually stop the airplane <laughs> to make sure you're as close as possible because you have to keep at least one leg on the stairs as you, uh, that the, we call the how to, uh, on the stairs of the airplane as you pop the cork and you try and get it on top of the hangar. Yeah, most people, most people do, some don't, it depends on the wind, but yes, I got it both times. Um, Let's see, assuming it was the Freckle uh, Pony again, assuming it was still in service, would you have swapped the U-2 for the SR-71? The SR-71 was a pretty cool airplane. I would have loved to fly that. Um, I don't know if I would have swapped, but that would have been a cool airplane to fly. Jason Parkinson, U-2 maintainer. Awesome, great, welcome. Let's see. When Doug asked when flying at altitude in turbulent air, did anyone ever lose control of a U two? Um, you know, I, I can't speak specifically, uh, you know, to, to any incidents, uh, that have happened. However, I can tell you about my own personal experiences in dealing with, um, turbulence in the airplane, especially high altitude turbulence. Um, probably one of the most, uh, I want to say I don't want to say scary encounters, but startling encounters I've ever had was over northeastern Afghanistan um, in the U-2 and encountering high altitude turbulence. You have such a small margin of of error between or such a small margin between stall and overspeed uh, that when you start to really encounter that high altitude mountain wave and, and high altitude turbulence, um you're kind of right in that you know stall overspeed stall overspeed you know situation and <clears throat> there've been a couple times where um uh it's bounced back and forth pretty drastically for me uh getting into you know initial buffet on the airplane and then going up into into to an overspeed situation with and there's absolutely nothing that you can do about it um it's just one of those things so uh yeah, it's 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 uh, it's not fun. I'll tell you what, high altitude turbulence on that airplane is not a, a pleasant time. Uh, so let's see, let's take a look here. Kathleen Hartmeister, my son is number eight thirty two. Now retired. I don't think I recognize your uh, your son's last name, but eight thirty two is not uh, not too much before me. I was number nine thirty seven. So. <clears throat> let's see, let's see, Sam Pilcher asks, can you talk at all about the uh, the various mission fits the U2 can carry and the flexibility of swapping them between uh, flights? Yeah, sure, a little bit, it, you know, in, in kind of generic terms. We, uh, we are capable of carrying in cameras uh, that we place on our nose. Uh, those cameras can be um, of several different types. We have uh, a synthetic aperture um, uh, a camera housing. We have a camera housing that uses uh, a radar as well. And we have uh, some other, uh, other cameras um, that actually use uh, wet film uh, still, you know, 10,000 feet of, of wet film that we place in the airplane. And it, it takes no kidding actual uh, pictures. So we can swap out those noses on the airplane. Uh, they're interchangeable it takes a while to do that though it's not a quick thing um and it's 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 planned well in advance as far as what type of mission that you're going to do and then we have all of our uh, electronic sensors uh typically those are housed in the pods on the wings a lot of people think that those are fuel tanks Um, but they're actually uh, pods for um, all the electronics that are on the airplane that can look and listen and, and do all of those things that, uh, that we like to do. So that's about all it, uh, that I'm willing to get into for that. But uh, it, it is a, a fairly flexible platform. We consider ourselves a multi int platform, meaning that we can do multiple things at once in terms of looking and listening. And, and uh, <clears throat> it's a very capable platform from that standpoint. Uh, and one of the reasons that it has been around as long as it has. So let's see. <clears throat> uh, Martin Strumfer asks uh, How gently did you have to fly the airplane, considering every possible measure was taken to save weight, meaning she wasn't very strong? It's important to realize that. Even though every uh, measure was taken to save weight, the airplane is incredibly strong. Um, it needs to be strong to be able to carry the weight that it does. It actually carries quite a bit of, of uh, weight in sensors and fuel. And uh, landing the airplane, um, it actually takes a, a bit of, uh, you know, it, it's kind of punishing on the airplane. There's a lot of weight that's being pushed or that's being forced upon that single main, uh, main wheel. And, uh, and, um, it's, it can definitely take a little bit of a beating. So, um, you know, any, any airplane you want to be careful with it, you know, they're not, they're not monster trucks, you know, they're not designed to be, uh, you know, really, really, um, You know, it's not like it's not like you're driving a tank around. Right. But uh, believe it or not, it actually is a a very strong airplane. And they they were able to do that through the design and engineering of it, uh, even though it is very, very light. So. Let's see here. Sorry, guys, just looking through uh, just looking through some of the questions here. Okay. Ah, there we go. I found my place again. (laughs) Uh, Flight Express asks, what's my favorite part of flying the U-2? Well, in addition to the fact that, you know, you're you're working with an incredible team of people when you're flying the airplane, it's. There's a couple parts uh, that I really like about flying the airplane, and it's not all about the the flying. The, um, the community of people surrounding that airplane are incredible. Uh, the pilots are all people that truly want to be there. Uh, we we're very lucky in the fact that we are one of the few units that can selectively hire people. Uh, so you get a lot of people that become a part of that unit that really, really, and truly enjoy flying and, and want to be very, very good at it. So it's amazing surrounding yourself with, with those kinds of people. Um, and it is unique, uh, you know, every air force flying unit that I've been a part of has been great, but there's really something special about the U2 community. Uh, a lot of us have our own airplanes as well that we fly outside of work. Uh, I have two, uh, and a lot of my friends also have, uh, have airplanes that we fly outside of work. Flying the airplane in particular, it's a pilot's airplane. It's a stick and rudder airplane. I really enjoy that aspect of it down low. It flies like a dump truck. It's really heavy in the roll. Uh, it's a little bit lighter in pitch and it's very, very responsive and way overpowered, uh, when you're down low. So you have a tremendous amount of thrust that you need to manage. And uh, it can be, you know, fairly challenging to fly that airplane down low. Uh, up high, the airplane is beautiful to fly. Um, most of the time it's on autopilot, but it fly, that's where everything just kind of comes together. And it kind of handles like a, like a sports car up there. It rolls well. It pitches well. Um, it can turn on a dime. You know, it's, it's pretty incredible how it uh, functions up at altitude. Uh, so, um, and the view, you really can't beat the view. Uh, you know, it is truly something spectacular to be able to be sitting up there at altitude and seeing the curvature of the earth and the blackness of space, knowing that the next highest people to you are in the international space station. You're sitting there in a spacesuit, and, you know, I can remember on my very last flight in the airplane, just sitting there looking over San Francisco Bay and, and, um, you know, hang out looking around saying like what a, a privilege and an honor it has been to, uh, to be a part of that program and to be in a position where I'm able to, to witness the planet from that way. It's, it's, was pretty, pretty cool. So <clears> tube <throat> food in the UCD. Yep. All parts of life <laughs> as a YouTube pilot. Let's see, Uh, Space Dreams asks, is it true that the U-2 can get stuck when turning on the taxiway? Interesting question, yes. It can, but um, it's not gonna really get stuck. What's going to happen is is if you don't judge it correctly, um, you can, uh, the, the turn radius of the airplane on the ground is very, very shallow. You only have about six degrees or so of left and right on the tailwheel. Um, so you kind of need to plan your turns very carefully. And a, a lot of uh, taxiways are not really, you know, they have sharp 90 degree turns. And it can be difficult sometimes uh, to turn the airplane. So if you get into a situation where it's looking like you're going to be taking your mains off uh, off the runway, you may have to come to a stop. The mobile may have to coordinate for maintenance to come out. And uh, get a bunch of guys out there and literally get, you know, 10 guys on either side of the airplane and push you back uh, to be able to reset the airplane so you can continue taxiing. But uh, believe it or not, that's a fairly I don't want to say it's a common thing, but it's expected that it's going to happen at some point, And it's really not that big of a deal. Uh, so <clears throat> you just get some maintainers out there, push the airplane back a bit, and then you uh, you continue along your way. But it is it is kind of funny. Um, and sometimes you'll drag your pogos, uh, the, the wheels on the, the tips of the wings, you'll drag those into the, into the dirt a little bit. If you're not completely on center line, depending on how wide the taxiway is and everything, it's just, just one of those things that makes the, uh, the U2 a little bit more of a unique airplane. So let's see. Uh, when do you think the U2 will be retired? That's another good question. The U2 has been slated uh, to be retired multiple times over the course of you know history, including a little bit more recently. I think uh, 2019 was the last time that it was supposed to be retired, and each time that that timeline comes up, uh, it is extended or the retirement is just. Uh, eliminated altogether and postponed indefinitely because of the quality of the intelligence that it provides and there really is still nothing out there that can provide the same level of intelligence and the same level of flexibility at the same time uh, you know satellites are kind of tapped out as far as the capabilities that they provide and and i mean they're they're kind of Max performing the the uh, the schedule of the satellites, and uh, unless they're in geosynchronous orbit, you get a 90 minute you know cycle when you before you can get another picture or whatever it is that you're looking for. Uh, with the U2, if there's something that needs to be dynamically retasked, if we need to you know if we decide that we want to hold over a particular area and we want to continue to observe something going on, it's very easy to just. Through, the, uh, through our mission controller, radio up to us, come up with a plan, figure out where we want to be, and, and be able to hold the aircraft um, uh, in a particular location. Even the unmanned stuff at this point really is not up to par with the capabilities that we have and with the altitudes that we're able to perform it at. Um, so I'm sure there will be a day where the U-2 is retired, but um, still not looking like that's going to be uh, anytime soon. So, <clears throat> let's see. Jin Zhang asks, uh, what does the sky look like that high? Stars and colors. So, the, the sky really starts to, you start to notice a, a pretty drastic change um, in the high 60s, um, high 60,000 foot range or so, or in the 70 plus uh, range is where you start to really notice the change in the night, in the sky, even during the day that's where you really start to it, it starts to change into a, a darker black uh to a, in a very 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 deep blue you start to see that thin line uh in the evening as well <coughs> excuse me as in the evening as well um the terminator line starts to rise very very quickly that's kind of the the shadow the 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 definition between uh, uh you know daylight and and nighttime uh as the shadow rises over the earth uh that's very, very distinct from, from those altitudes. And I can remember once coming home, flying over the Persian Gulf, um, as I'm watching the Terminator line rise in front of me, I'm looking down, I'm looking into the darkness, I'm looking into nighttime. I can see all of the lights from the oil rigs and from the cities, uh, that I'm, that we're flying towards. And uh, as I'm flying home and, uh, I look behind me, And the sun is still up over my shoulder and it's still shining. But in front of me, I'm like peering. It's almost like peering under the under the covers, you know, looking down into nighttime. But it's more distinct and more sharp than than anything I'd ever seen before. And I can just remember in that moment, I wish that I had some sort of camera that could capture, uh, you know, that in its in its hole, because never in a million years would I have expected to see something like that. So. Uh, very, very cool how the night sky looks. Uh, let's see, uh, Jeff McQuate. uh, what's the Global Hawk's role in the ninth? Um, the Global Hawk is another high altitude, uh, uh, reconnaissance asset that we have available to us. Um, I have a lot of friends that, uh, that fly that airplane and, um, it's a great airplane. Although. Uh, it still just can't quite meet the capabilities uh, of the U-2, which is why the U-2 is still around. I think it was intended uh, to replace the U-2, but it just really isn't quite there yet. So, um, Let's see. Tony S. Yep, yep. <laughs> Any aircraft come close to intercepting you at high altitude? Not that I know of. Are you a, <laughs> Troy, Troy Llewellyn asks, uh, are you a fan of the band U2 since you're flying u U2? Um, yeah, I guess so. I don't know. I don't really listen to U2 music that much. Was TR, uh, Mirrored Window asked, was TR1, uh, a designation something I can elaborate on? That's it's kind of in uh, historical context and, uh, I've only heard rumor about this. You guys uh, probably know a little bit more about this than, than maybe I do. But my understanding is that back in the day when we were operating U-2s out of Alkenberry, uh, my understanding is that the UK government didn't want something that was called the U-2 operating o- out, of their, uh, uh, out of the UK. So we had to rename the airplane uh, and called it the TR-1 instead of the U-2. Uh, maybe you guys can correct me on that, but I think think it was more of a political thing, um, than, uh, than it's, it's the same airplane from what I understand. Uh, nothing, nothing different about the airplane, not a different model, uh, just a different designation for political reasons. Hmm. So the, uh, don't quite know how to say that, the Rocinante, Rocinante. <laughs> uh, I heard that at high altitude, the U2 stall speed is actually very close to the max speed limit. How true is that? We actually have a very, very narrow margin uh, at altitude uh, between stall and ma- the maximum speed of the airplane. Uh, so that is very true. We call that the, the coffin corner. And um, it's, uh, I wish I had graphs and stuff to be able to, uh, to be able to, uh, describe it in a little bit more detail to you. But at those altitudes, you really are kind of just hanging on the, the, the ragged edge of, uh, the max performance of the wing of the airplane. Um, uh, it's really providing its maximum amount of lift at that point, but the air is so thin, uh, that any real major change in angle of attack is really going to uh, make the airplane, um, the wing stall very quickly. So that is, uh, that is true. Uh, let's see. At operating altitudes, have you ever opened your helmet? Uh, can it be done? What happens to the human body? So the, uh, the cockpit actually is pressurized. Um, the suit is a backup. Uh, so if you have a rapid decompression, the suit is there to uh, save your life. So that being said, if you decided that you were going to open your, your helmet, which you are not supposed to do, um, if you decided to open your helmet and say, you know scratch your face or, or something, um, if you had a rapid decompression in that moment, uh, you could be in a world of hurt. Above Armstrong's line, which is right around 62 or 63,000 feet, uh, at body temperature, at the pressures that you experience at operational altitudes, your internal uh, bodily fluids would actually start to boil. Um, so that would be that would be bad. Um, so no, it is not recommended uh, that you open your helmet uh, at those altitudes. But if you were to open your helmet. Um, to scratch your face or something like that, uh, nothing would happen as long as there wasn't a rapid decompression in that moment. So, let's see. David Powell asks, Hello, Joel, how do you deal uh, with the loneliness of being up there on your own? So, while it is true that in the airplane you are the only person... Uh, the only person on board. Um, you're actually working with a group of about uh, sixty to seventy or so folks that are on the ground, and you are in direct communication with a uh, mission operations controller. We call them the MOC. Uh, when you're on one of your missions, so <clears throat> your missions are actually fairly busy. Uh, you are in constant communication with them, um, manipulating uh, the uh, the flight path of the airplane, uh, having targets redesignated. Uh, There's a lot of things that are going on while you're flying the airplane. They're constantly, um, you know, uh, communicating with you uh, and vice versa. So uh, you are honestly busy enough where you kind of forget the fact that you're up there by yourself. Uh, Although in some some moments there where it is, you know, just kind of quiet, it's actually kind of nice to just sit there and enjoy uh, and enjoy the view and just kind of stare off into space for a little while. So I kind of liked it. Made going back to a crew airplane uh, kind of interesting, too. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Like Doug Masters in his Iron Eagle in the F-16, can you listen to music up there? (laughs) Uh, You can listen to music up there. It might not necessarily be legal, <laughs> but you can listen to music up there. Um, ever thought about the SR seventy one in comparison? Yeah, I, I, it would have been a great airplane to fly, but it was retired long before uh, I ever got into the into the U two. Uh, let's see, Jin Zhang again. Uh, can you induce a spin with the U two? So the uh, the U two is actually um, the, the the flight manual actually talks about. Uh, spins in the airplane. When you get into a fully developed spin in the U-2, it can be impossible to recover from um, because of the fact that the wings are so long, uh, all of the fuel would kind of rush out uh, to the, the outboard edges of, of the fuel tanks, and the rudder's just not uh, large enough um, to, uh, to when you're putting, anti- when you would put anti-spin controls into the airplane, there's two things that it's lacking. Uh, it's lacking enough rudder authority uh, to really help stop the spin. And it's also, my understanding is that there's a, a low pressure that forms, uh, the top of the airplane kind of behind the wing. And what that does is it really kind of uh, prevents the elevator from being as effective as it needs to, to break the stall and, uh, and recover the airplane. So, um, Again, uh, you guys might be able to correct me on that if you know more about aerodynamics. But uh, those are kind of the two things that I understand. uh, And it just uh, becomes very uh, dangerous in a a spin situation. So, yes, in a fully developed spin, um, ejecting is is one of your only ways out. So. Let's see. Shiny Baldy asks, can you talk a little bit about the Black Cat Squadron? So the Black Cat Squadron is the fifth RS uh, out in Korea. And um, they, those guys have been around for a very, very long time. I was out in Korea. Uh, one of my first deployment with the U-2 was out to Korea and had a, a great time out there. Oscar the Cat is still running around. He's the squadron mascot. And he's still running around the hangar, although I th- think he's number five or number six uh, over the lifetime of the, uh, of the squadron. Let's see, Boise City Planes asks, I know you guys have T-38As as well. What type of training do you do in that airplane? Yeah, have you ever flown into Boise? Uh, because they get the uh, the Beale Talons there quite often. So one of the great parts about flying the U-2 is also getting a chance to fly the T-38. So it's considered our companion our companion trainer uh, in the airplane. It's part of something called the CTP program. And we use the T-38s for uh, for proficiency, for instrument training. Um, uh, the airplane is, is fantastic. It's an absolute blast to fly. It was one of my favorite parts of the program. We could, uh, take it out for the afternoon to be able to go do aerobatics in the MOA, to go do formation flying, to go do low levels. Uh, we could take it out to go cross country. You could sign it out for a couple days and go do uh, an instrument proficiency trip. Uh, you could sign it out over the weekend, as long as it was, you know, planned ahead of time and approved by leadership. Uh, You could uh, you really had a lot of freedom with the airplane and it was a a phenomenal program. Um, Really, really a lot of fun. Uh, So that's kind of what we do with the airplanes. Um, The reason we have them is because there are so few U2s out there and they are a very high value asset. They're very expensive to fly. They require a lot of maintenance. It's a lot less expensive for us to be able to maintain our uh, instrument proficiency and and flying proficiency in the T-38. And it is one of the few programs in the Air Force where you do maintain a dual qualification in two different types of airplanes. So uh, that kind of makes it um, uh, very unique. And yes, I have flown into, uh, into Boise. So let's see here. How hard uh, one CAG asks uh, how hard would it be to achieve a smooth landing or touchdown without the radio assistance from the chase car? So the um, the mobile, which is what we call the chase car, they're another qualified u two pilot. Uh, typically they would be um, uh, driving out onto the runway, chasing you as you're landing doing, you know, a hundred miles an hour behind you, trying to stay 20 or 30 feet behind the airplane, helping make accurate radio calls so that you can put the airplane down, uh, in the manner in which you, you should be, which is, uh, in uh, slightly tail first, completely stalling the airplane, allowing the mains to come crashing down on the ground, maintaining center line, no crab, no drift. And, uh, There are occasions where if you do have to perform an emergency landing, um, you may not have or probably would not have a mobile available. Uh, So you would have to do a no voice landing. And we do practice those quite a bit um, on on our low missions, on our pattern only missions that we're flying uh, back at uh, back at Beale. Uh, We will typically practice no voices quite a bit. Uh, in the event that we do have to put one down, uh, you know, off field, and um, it's actually not that difficult. After you do enough landings, you kind of get the sight picture uh, for what it should look like. And while they're maybe a little bit more messy, if you will, uh, than when the mobile's talking you down, um, most folks don't have too much trouble with their no voices. So, um,
0: so Joel, can you hear me right now? I can't hear you right now. Perfect. If you pick uh two more questions and then we're going to wrap up this brilliant Q&A but if you stay on the line with me on Skype yeah. uh after you've answered uh but uh, that'll be great. So just answer away the next two that you think are worthy. <laughs> sure, no problem. No problem.
1: Let's see. <clears throat> uh oh, this is a good one. Um uh, how does it feel landing the U2 in crosswinds? Um, so I, I like that question because it's it's kind of unique how you land a U2 in the in a crosswind. Um, for most airplanes, uh, there is a so there's a couple different uh, there's a there's a crosswind limit for a lot of airplanes. There's a maximum demonstrated limit for a lot of airplanes, meaning that's the maximum limit that they have flight tested. Um, And the U-2 kind of has a, uh, the U-2 has, it doesn't really have a crosswind limit. Uh, 15 knots is generally considered to be the normal crosswind limit of the airplane, but there's an emergency procedure uh, that simply states for landing in a crosswind in excess of 15 knots. And what you do in that situation is you actually have to land at a reduced flap setting Um, for two purposes. One, because you don't want the the barn doors, you know, hanging down as as low as possible if you're going to have some wing rock. Uh, So, um, uh, you know, it allows you a little bit more uh, directional control. And then um, when you touch down, so this is is the technique. When you actually touch down, what's going to happen is, is that as you start to slow the rudder is going to start to lose some aerodynamic authority, but the tail wheel, you're gonna be going too fast, and the tail wheel is not going to have enough grip to be able to counteract that crosswind. So what you're going to have to do is you're going to, so it's going to start to weather vane into the wind. What you do is you actually take the ailerons and you slam the downwind tip of the wing onto the pavement. There's a titanium uh, skid plate on the, uh, on the tips of the wings. And what you do is, by doing that, you're creating drag on that wing, which will help pull the nose back to center line. And once you keep that wingtip on the ground, you don't let it up, so you're dragging that wingtip on the ground for the entire length of your uh, your rollout. So that's kind of a that's kind of a unique um, uh, thing about landing the uh, the airplane in a crosswind in excess of 15 knots. So yeah, there's a lot of I see a lot of kind of there's some repeat questions in here. And uh, where did I get my flight training for the L-39? I'll just, I'll just kind of finish up um, with that real quick. I fly L-39s on the side for a great organization called the Patriots Jet Team. We have a, a foundation called the Patriots Jet Team Foundation, and we um, we have classes and, and help raise a lot of money for scholarships for kids to introduce them into the, the world of aviation. And if I had a, uh, an organization like that when I was growing up, um, uh, that would have been a, a, a really, really cool experience uh, to, to to have had something like that available. So if you get a chance, go check it out. Uh, uh, Patriots Jet Team Foundation dot org. You can go, go check it out there.